as we mentioned on the opening night. Our intention for the first few days of the retreat and these uh, teaching sessions is to reflect on some of the fundamental aspects of the insight practice. Can everyone hear all right at the back? You okay? Sorry to see someone. Yeah. Good. Thank you. So this practice, you could call this insight practice, this practice of waking up, awakening heart, mind, awakening our lives, is premised on a recognition of the potential for transformation and equally on the recognition of the need for transformation with regard to what most of us certainly frequently experience as the condition of our hearts and minds, a condition in which we may encounter limitation, obstruction, obscuration, The Buddha once observed, he said, friends, I think the word literally he might have used was monks, but that's probably because that's who he was talking to. So I often prefer to translate it as friends, practitioners. Friends, he said, this mind is luminous, radiant, brightly shining. It is obscured by visitors that come from outside the mind. For those who do not understand this, there is no training of the mind and heart. And he went on to say, friends, this mind is luminous, brightly shining, radiant. It is free from the obscurations which visit it. For those who understand this, there is training and development of the heart and mind. It's kind of a free translation. There are various versions of exactly what the Buddha may have said. But the essential teaching here, I think, is really important for us to to hold clearly. The nature of the mind itself is is radiant. Is clear. And yet our experience of it is often obscured. confused, engaged in struggle. If we don't understand that the obscuration of the mind is not inherent to it, then there really is no basis for seeking to transform it. But if we understand that the 
the mind itself is not ultimately bound by those conditions and forces that create struggle and obscuration, obstacle, we could say, to our well-being. If we understand that, then there is the potential for transformation, for freedom. And so the Buddha spoke again and again about the the importance of recognizing the the forces that arise in our minds, the tendencies and patterns that for much of our lives we've perhaps been unconscious of or identified with as somehow being what's most true or most real. And these are things which I imagine all of you will have heard of before, if not many times before. And yet, important to bring to mind, to reflect on, what are sometimes translated as the five hindrances. I prefer to describe them as the five challenges. And there are, of course, more than five, but these particular five, worthy of giving our attention to. Challenges because these forces, and they're described briefly as sense desire, as aversion, as restlessness and agitation, as sloth and torpor, sleepiness, drowsiness, and as doubt, sceptical, undermining doubt. These forces, though we may be quite familiar with them, we may have heard of them, they, if we're not conscious of them, if we're not able to work with them skillfully, make it very difficult for us to really be fully present. They appear as obstacles, as challenges, in the process of deepening wakefulness. And the tendency is, until we have some training, some wisdom, to identify with them, to believe that they are who or what we are, or that what stories or perceptions arise from them, the view and perception that arises from those particular tendencies of mind, we tend to believe that it's true. And so we're asked to really look at, to consider. I think there's something useful in understanding them as visitors, things that come, so that we we recognize that that doesn't mean, you know, visitors come, we should be gracious. We should be, uh, you know, kindly towards visitors who might knock on our door. But we would, though we might offer them a cup of tea, we wouldn't hand them over the keys to the house. We might not even invite them in if they don't seem appropriate. But that we might nonetheless just acknowledge, oh, this is what's visiting, this is what's here. Very easily we can tend to either want to deny or reject the arising of such experience, or we, in not seeing it clearly, identify with and, in a way, allow our house to become taken over, with the consequence that we don't really have anywhere to live, or so it can feel. So there's something about recognising, about being able to see, ah, 
this force has arisen. This particular condition has arisen. Without rejecting it, without abandoning oneself to it. Sometimes it seems like it's the sort of the the primary school work of meditation, you know. We sometimes think, oh, can't we get beyond talking about hindrances? It would be nice, wouldn't it? Or looking at hindrances. You know, I'm more interested in this luminance radiance that we hear spoken of. Yeah, me too. But, and the Buddha likewise, I'm sure. And yet, to be really honest with ourselves about the power of these forces, the prevalence of these forces in our minds, in the world equally, to see the movement of wanting, of desire, of craving, how simply it arises. Even just walking down the hallway as I arrived this morning and smelling the freshly baked and delivered bread and just think, mmm. Now, for me, that uh, very clearly the sense of, yes, I want. And it's fine to have the experience, but if the mind picks it up and starts thinking, well, maybe I don't need to do instructions this morning, I can just uh, find a piece of that bread and sit in the corner and uh, enjoy myself. You know? One could likewise say, oh, I don't know if I need to meditate this morning, maybe I'll do something more cosy, more comfortable. Such a simple thought can seem like, oh yeah, that's the way to happiness. That's what will bring me satisfaction. And to, to pick up the way we catch or we get caught by the movement of desire in relationship to the possibility of something pleasurable, enjoyable, delightful, entertaining, stimulating. So many things that might seem more attractive than simply being present, than simply engaging with our experience. And the idea that they offer the sense of satisfaction, of somewhere to rest, somewhere that if I get, if I keep, if I hold this, then ah, then it will be as I wish it to be. And to see the trap, to see the hook, to see the deception in that, to be able to notice the movement, to know it for what it is, to be clear. Oh, this is wanting, this is desire. This is essentially a fantasy that there's something that can fulfill me out there. When in fact there isn't. The only real fulfillment comes in establishing ourselves in wholehearted present consciousness and being awake. And likewise, aversion we experience in the form of resistance, in the form of fear, form of irritation or anger. Any movement that's somehow pushing away, that's separating from, that's disconnecting in relationship to what's happening, that somehow says that this experience, which I do not wish or enjoy or find easy to bear, and there are many of them here, our minds, our bodies, Sometimes our environment or our companions can touch us, impact us in all sorts of ways. And so quickly the idea arises, well, if the staff stopped making that noise, or if the building was just a little bit warmer, then things would be good. Then I'd be able to meditate. Then it would be okay. The idea that somehow a particular condition is what stands in the way. It's just the inverse or the reverse of the 
the underlying identification with desire is that if I get something, then everything will be great and fine. And this is more that, oh, this thing is the problem. If only this wasn't here, then if my body was comfortable, if I wasn't feeling sort of unease in my body, then I could really meditate. To see that when we when there's a sense of wanting, we're asked to let go. Just say, no, I don't need to pick up one more thing. To respond to that movement of craving just with a simple steadiness and ease of just, okay, no, I don't need that extra thing. I don't need to hold on to it. Whether it be a moment of calm and peace or the thought of, Something more entertaining than just being here. Likewise with the movement of aversion, to really just bring in the possibility, actually maybe it's okay to be here in the midst of this experience. Maybe the experience that's arising that I find difficult or challenging or scary or just unpleasant, maybe that is not in the way. And the response that we're asked to bring forth is to let it be. Just let it be. And yet know the experience for what it is. We can sometimes confuse a little bit. We think, oh, if it's unpleasant, I need to let it go. I need to let it go. That means it should go away if I'm doing it right. And it's not like that. What we're letting go in that sense would be letting go of our wish for things to be other than as they are. Letting go of the way we put pressure on the experience on ourselves, on the moment that we're in, demanding that it be other than as it is. But when it arises to know, ah, this is aversion, this is resistance, maybe it becomes strong in the form of anger, or really we want to push something away quite forcefully, or hatred and the wish to destroy that, which seems to be in the way. The very identification with those tendencies and patterns, that's actually where the freedom is to be found in letting go of our identification with, with grasping, with aversion. And just as these are, in a way, paired qualities... So too, restlessness and agitation on the one hand and drowsiness, heaviness, or it's rather wonderfully called sloth and torpor in some of the old translations. These also represent, in a way, polarities in the same spectrum. And this is much more to do with the, the way in which we're engaged. Craving and aversion and expressions are the primary cause of suffering, of, of attachment. Wanting things to be or to not be a certain way. With restlessness, it's, it's where there's too much energy. There's not enough calm or holding or ground. And so the mind is kind of busy. It's looking this way, it's looking that way. can get involved with both uh, craving or aversion. But what we tend to more notice is a sense of just busyness, of activity, of unsettledness seems to be hard to be still and it's like I need to do something I've got to do something 
in the mind or the body is shifting. And just to feel what that's like can be quite uncomfortable at times, but to see if we can be steady with that. What restlessness tends to need is a willingness just to meet it and be there. To not to not have to do something. It easily arises when we're trying a little bit too hard. When we're kind of pushing, trying to get somewhere. We're trying to get rid of something or make something happen. And there's a sense of striving often or the need to strive. But it's out of balance. It's out of balance. And so some sense of relaxing can be really helpful. Again, just the name, ah, restlessness. As uh, one teacher used to invite their students, I heard, to see if they could be the first practitioner to die of restlessness. <coughs> to really not move in the face of it. To see what's it like to relax. To connect with a possibility of spaciousness or tranquility that could embrace the experience. Again, watching the tendency of identification is, I have to do something, I have to do something. Actually, maybe you don't have to do something. This identifying from restlessness is actually, maybe right now there's nothing that needs to be done. And there's simply the invitation to connect with, to meet, to be wholehearted with what's here, just as it is. That, that urge in the, in the structure of the identity self, the ego, of, of needing to be busy with something to do. So much momentum to it. Just learning to let that momentum exhaust itself. Being just present with it is all we need to do, to know it. And with drowsiness, sleepiness, sloth and torpor, it's a condition in which actually there's more calm and quiet and not enough energy. So the imbalance is in the same spectrum of energy, but it's to do with not enough energy. Too much calm, we could say, in a simple way. And what we tend to experience is heaviness, drowsiness, dullness, tendency to not really be able to make contact with the experience, things to feel, feel cloudy. And the identification we take with it is often, I need to rest, I need to take a break, I need to not have to be here, because it's way too much work, and I've been working so hard. Well, there's so much going on. We don't always see that. We don't always recognize that voice in the drowsiness, in the heaviness, this call, this pull that says, yeah, go unconscious. That would be just what you need. And then, then maybe later we'll engage again. It's almost like a trade-off. Let me rest now and then later. Of course, sometimes we do need rest. Sometimes we do need rest. But often what we need to do in response to the tendency of mind, which can often be, in a way, the last escape route. When we don't give in so easily to the, the tendency to get pulled into thinking about, dwelling upon, pursuing desires, or enacting aversions. Sometimes the energy of the mind just seems to drain away, like sort of dishwater down the plug hole. And we just feel this sort of densification 
solidification. So to engage with that, to bring an active response, just as restlessness needed less engagement in a way, just quieting, softening, drowsiness needs more engagement, to sit up straight. Give more attention to the in-breath, which is the alive, engaged, vital expression of the breathing cycle. You can open your eyes. You've probably all heard this before, but I sometimes wonder. I say, I don't know if it's something one takes on board to heart, but if you put your arms up in the air, I don't know if you want to try that, you don't have to, but if you put your arms up in the air, it's possible to be really present, and even if you're drowsy, I guarantee you won't fall asleep. Simple thing, sometimes physically challenging to keep it there a little while, but making an effort with the body brightens the mind. It's like the mind can't brighten the mind itself necessarily. But if you put your arms up there and keep them there when you're drowsy, you'll stay awake. And it also just helps open up the area around the shoulders and the neck, which can, if it's contracted, easily lead to some sense of loss of fluidity of energy and heaviness, dullness. So, you know, if you want to stay awake in meditation, the possibility is always there. And that sense of an engagement of moving forward into the situation positively counterbalances what in drowsiness and heaviness is a certain withdrawal, a certain disengagement. One could follow the uh, example of a Korean Zen master, Kusan, who once uh, struggling with drowsiness, decided to spend a whole week standing on tiptoes. And he did. Quite remarkable. We may not need to go quite that far ourselves. But something about being able to separate from the belief that can be very strongly wired in, I need to rest more. Examine, question, sometimes we do need a little more rest. And that's fine to do so. But if you're clear that's not what's going on, sometimes we need to ask, is there something here I'm avoiding? Because drowsiness, heaviness, dullness can be an avoidance mechanism that we're quite well trained in. So again, just naming it, knowing it for what it is, seeing what's useful as a response. With restlessness, sort of turning the attention more to calm, more to the outbreath, the relaxing, releasing quality. With drowsiness, bringing to mind a sense of engagement or even what it is that inspires us, remembering what we're here for. The in breath, the arms, you can stand up even. It's like engage. And so the fifth of the the challenges, the hindrances that we encounter is doubt. You know? That sense of undermining sceptical mental activity that says, I don't know if this really works. I don't know if I can do this. I'm not sure this is the right time for me to do a retreat. 
a way in which we start to just slowly undermine the, the real beauty and nobility of our intentionality and our confidence, our trust and our capacity. So we have, all of us as human beings, this remarkable potential for wakefulness, for waking up, for freedom. And yet sometimes, and particularly consequent upon one of the other of the hindrances or challenges, we easily find the mind arising with the thought of doubt, of uncertainty. And what's interesting is that although it says I don't know or maybe I can't or maybe it's wrong, the underlying sense is actually that I really can't. It's true. This doesn't work. I'm no good. Or it's okay for others but not for me. And to actually start to question the doubt itself, to be curious about doubt. It's like, oh, yeah. How come that's so sure? How come we imagine we know that? To see if we can come back to our sense of what it is that inspires us, that what motivated us to be here. We can come back to that again and again. When doubt arises, what's most useful as a response, rather than arguing with it, is often to say, I don't know. I'm not sure where this is going, whether this is maybe always the right thing I should do. And yet, if we're not sure, but this is what we're doing, let's just explore it and see. So let me see what happens if I continue to practice here. Not identifying with, not taking up the the position of doubt which somehow fails to acknowledge and to honour our remarkable capacity as human beings for wakefulness. To trust that this is possible for each of us. And particularly important to understand that the arising of these conditions is something that is not a sign of a failure of practice, but actually it's often evidence of the appropriate and effectiveness of our practice because it actually flushes these tendencies of mind out into the open in order for them to be seen. And I think it's striking and significant that the Buddha himself experienced craving and aversion and restlessness. I don't think he actually had sleepiness, but he certainly had doubt on the night before his enlightenment. He was challenged by all of those forces. You know, the mythology of it suggests it was sort of some sort of encounter between archetypical sort of demons and the great um, Buddha to be. And yet looking at it more carefully we can see it's those were the forces the demons Mara and his hordes represent. And if all of that arose on the night before his awakening, it clearly isn't evidence that his practice hadn't been good or that he wasn't, in fact, near to the release of the heart that he sought. In fact, he was ever so close. And so, to be able to see, to be able to handle these tendencies is one of the ongoing trainings of practice. The Buddha used the, the beautiful metaphor of, of working of a goldsmith working with gold that is filled maybe with other metals such as tin and iron and copper. And as a result it's not pliable or radiant. But as the goldsmith works with the gold, 
and hates it and works it in the ways that goldsmiths do, the impurities slowly begin to separate and are seen to be separate from the precious material, which as it has worked, and it involves heat and quite a bit of thumping with so it's you know it's quite a <laughs> impactful process working gold. It's like we can feel impacted by the process, and yet as the impurities in the gold are separated out from it, the nature of the gold is revealed more and more clearly. And the Buddha used this specific metaphor, not by accident, I'm sure. Equally used the metaphor of water becoming clear as the things which cloud and ruffle and stir it, quiet and clear and settle. The sense of gold and its radiance and its luster and its malleability, its pliability, this mind has this remarkable capacity, not just radiance, but also an agility, a fluidity, a transparency, that we start to connect with more deeply, we start to sense as more and more the possibility, the potentiality of the mind that is free from greed and craving, from aversion and hatred, from restlessness and agitation, from drowsiness, dullness and disengagement, and free from sceptical doubt and undermining uncertainty. And so this is really the invitation of our practice, to know these conditions, to work with them skillfully, and to understand them as not being definitive of the nature of the mind. And in this mind-mind-heart, heart-mind, equally, not definitive of the nature of this heart-mind are those forces that impact it, that visit it. Knowing this, the Buddha said, knowing this, there is the transformation and the development of this heart and mind. And through that, it's liberation. Ryokan once said, and perhaps speaking of this process, the rain has stopped, the storm has passed, and the sky is clear again. When your heart is pure, all things in your world are pure. Let go of this fleeting world. Abandon your struggle with yourself. Then the moon and the flowers will guide you 
along the way. So let's continue practicing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.